Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you will be with us now as we turn to your word, that you will speak to us, that you will help us today to lay a foundation. Because we've got to do some building this fall. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you get a chance, you uh, can look in the lobby. There's a picture out there in the lobby, or you can look through the windows of some of the work that's going on on the new building and and how everything is kind of torn up right now. But uh, there's also a picture in each lobby you may want to check out that uh, Roland Thompson, our, our, uh, one of our treasurers, took with a drone where he flew it way up in the sky and took a picture down, and you can actually see in that where the footers are starting to go in for the new building. And it's really neat to see and it's real encouraging to see. But I mentioned that specifically because today what we're going to be doing during our time here today is we're putting in the footings. We're, we're laying the foundation for what we're going to be talking about this fall. And we need to take this time because what happens when you build a house without a solid foundation? It, it doesn't stand up very well. So in order for us to get to where we need to be, we need to lay a foundation. And that's our purpose here today is to lay a solid foundation. So I want to start today in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. We find these words, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. It's a very simple passage and one you've probably heard a lot, yet it's shockingly profound And this is the verse that is inspired and will drive us in our studies and in our reflection this fall. Faith, hope, love. But before we can fairly wrestle with with faith and hope and love, we need to get solid on a few things. And for one thing, we need to understand the context of 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now, it's a fabulous text, and it works really well by itself, but it's even more powerful when you take the time to understand where this verse sits in the middle of what Paul wrote in this letter to the Corinthians. So we're going to look at the context today, and in order to do that, I want to go back and I want us to read 1 Corinthians 13, 13 again, and I want you to read it with me. We're going to read this together. Here we go. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So obviously, the most important three words in this is faith, hope, and love. However, there is another word there that we need to address before we can really get on to faith and hope and love. And it is a word that I believe helps us begin to appreciate the significance of why Paul is saying faith, hope, and love here. And that word is remain. It says, and now these three remain. A quick online search will tell us that the English word remain, as it's rendered for us in the New International Version, which is what we were looking at there, means to continue to exist, especially after other similar or related people or things have ceased to exist. So what remains comes from what was, but continues to last after what was has gone away. Another definition for that word is to be left when the other parts are gone or have been used. 
Now, this is a very interesting definition and potentially very evocative to us as we go into this study of faith, hope, and love, but we need to be careful, and you should always be careful in this context, when someone is reading to you from one translation of the Bible, taking one English word and trying to build a big meaning out of it. Because why? Well, because Paul didn't write in English, did he? He wrote in Greek. So we always need to be sure whenever we start building a major point around any specific, particularly any specific English word, that the actual Greek word and what we understand that word to mean in our day overlaps properly. Now this idea of meaning overlap will make sense to anybody here who's bilingual. If you speak more than one language, you know that there are words in languages that approximate each other, but very often the words are not exactly the same. And this will come up for a person sometime when uh, you know the exact word to say to describe something, but it's in a language the other person won't understand, right? So, So words have overlapping meanings in different languages. So we always want to be careful when we key in very strongly on a single word. Always be skeptical, and this is just an aside here, always be skeptical of anyone who seeks to make a major biblical point based on a very narrow passage or on a single word taken from a single translation. Watch out for that. Now, you don't have to know Greek in order to check on this because we're blessed with a lot of different translations, and you can compare those translations, and it can give you an idea as to whether that word, the way it appears over here, is the same way as it might appear in another reading. But you have to be careful for people who want to use narrow readings of specific passages, and I'll give you an example as to why. Some years ago in this country, People used to use narrow readings of the Bible to support ideas like slavery. Because you can take a very narrow reading of a certain place and make the argument that that's a good thing. But if you take a larger reading of the whole of the Bible and understand that the Bible is about deliverance and about liberation and about the goodness of God and about loving one another, you will know that that is not compatible. So be careful that no one traps you. And I just want to say in that regard, there are people who seek to take that same narrow reading when it comes to women and their place in the church. Be careful that what you read in a narrow context isn't in denial of the message of the whole. But now that I've given you that warning to watch out for people who are doing what I'm doing, let's go back to what I was doing there. Focusing in on this key word, remain. Is this a good translation? Well, in the Greek, the word translated remain by the New International Version, or it's abide or abideth in the King James, is this word, manai. Now, if you're taking notes, you're going to want to jot this down. You probably already knew this. Manai is the third person singular present active indicative form of another word, right? Don't you love grammar? Grammar is a beautiful thing. I don't know who invented all those descriptors, but that's what it is. All right, don't worry about that. But it comes from another word, and that word is meno. That's the simple verb form of the Greek word. Meno is a verb which in modern Greek has come to mean to remain or to stay. And in ancient Greek, it meant to stand fast and remain in place. So from this, we see that the English translation of remain 
or abide is in fact a good equivalent. And because now we understand that, we're ready to take a stab at better understanding 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So let's look at it again. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Okay, so now think about this for a minute. If something remains, it has to remain from something else, right? There has to have been a bigger thing from which these three remain. You can't have a remnant without a larger original material. So, so let's go down this road. From what does faith, hope, and love remain? What is the larger reality? Now, I suppose there's quite a number of ways we could answer this, but I think the very best way to understand what Paul means would be to use 1 Corinthians itself, this immediate context, this whole letter that Paul has written to this church in Corinth. And to do that, or at least to begin to do that, I want to take us back to the beginning of chapter 13, back to what we were considering earlier in this year. So 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It's a very strange saying. It's a a metaphorical hyperbole, but it's very effective, I think. And he goes on, verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Now, this is really quite surprising because to be honest with you, if I was sitting in my office and you came into my office and you prophesied something and then you unlocked to my mind some mysteries I've been wondering about all my life and after that you moved a mountain, I'd be pretty impressed with you. But the Bible suggests even if you did all those things in my presence but you're still a jerk, and you're still impossible to get along with, and you still don't have a heart for other people, you're not something. You're nothing. Verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Not even voluntary poverty nor death is enough to overcome a lack of love in your life. All right, so why is Paul talking about tongues of men or angels or the gift of prophecy or even martyrdom? Well, the answer lies in what was going on in Corinth when Paul wrote this letter. It seems there was a lot of really good things going on in the Corinthian church, but there was also a great deal of trouble, and trouble of a nature so significant that it threatened to undo all the good that the good things were doing. So, so let's go to this letter and see what we can understand. We're going to go all the way back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. You know what this is a description of? This is a description of theological arguing in the church. That's what Paul's talking about. You all are wasting time in theological arguing. 
He goes on, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. Why are they not ready? You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? So he's saying there's a lot of really good stuff here, but you guys can't get along. That's not what we're going for. And it leads Paul to this interesting warning. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. Now this next verse is remarkable. Because we don't often think about the kingdom of God this way. So verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The kingdom of God is about power. Sometimes I think we do an awful lot more talking about the kingdom of God than we do acting in the power of the kingdom of God. And here Paul is calling them out. You're talking big. Let's see what power you have. Verse 21, what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? So what he's describing here is is a church that's doing a lot and it has a lot of, of, of amazing things going on, but it also has some very deep fractures within the community. And some of these fractures, we'll find out as we keep reading in the book, have led to the people actually taking legal action against one another within the church, going outside the community of the church to resolve their issues in a court of law. They've gone to the pagans to solve the problems between the brothers. Paul doesn't like that. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Paul is trying to help them get a better vision here because they're focused on themselves. The gospel has been good for them. They have prospered. But it has also caused them to look a little more towards themselves. And he's trying to get them to see beyond themselves because despite some remarkable things in this church, they still seem to be kind of selfish. Chapter 8, verse 9, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. All right, what's this about? So another thing going on in this community was there were, there were certain members who were, let's call them a little more progressive than the others. And there were certain behaviors that they felt as though were okay for them, but they were doing these behaviors in a way that they were doing them in the face of people who were very uncomfortable with that. And they weren't doing it with any sensitivity at all towards those people. They were like, what's wrong with you? Look at my freedom in Christ. 
And it was actually causing some of the others in the community to struggle with their own faith. Paul has a suggestion for them, and his way is that they should follow his example, that their eyes should be on the other person, not on themselves. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And then verse 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So there's a lot of good going on here, but there's a lot of things happening between the people in their relationships that's not healthy. And then comes the part we read whenever we have communion service. But there's a part before the part we read for communion service that we don't usually read. Now I'm going to read it for you today. I probably won't read it next time we have communion, but I'm going to read it for you today so that you can understand the context. 1 Corinthians 11 Verse 17, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. And then comes the part you know. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, I don't point this out to say we're abusing this passage when we just go to that section and read it when we have communion, because Paul is definitely here outlining how we would go about that service. But we need to understand he gives this description uh, because what's going on in the community is extremely unhealthy. Now, you may also be wondering why I'm reading you all of these different things out of 1 Corinthians. Well, remember, we are in search of what things faith, hope, and love remain from. What is the big picture from which faith, hope, and love remain? And if you're paying attention here, you should be starting to see this already, I think, because everything we have mentioned so far, all of these things I've described are things that exist in every church, don't they? You've probably seen most of these things, and maybe you've even seen them here. And pretty much what we've talked about so far are negative examples of things from which faith, hope, and love remain. But that's not the only thing, because in the next chapter, we're going to discover some really good things that happen in the church, but Paul is going to make the point that faithless, hopeless, loveless use of even good things is damaging. And we got a hint of this from the idea of this communion service. This is a glorious service that talks about the death and resurrection and return of Jesus Christ. But when it's not done with faith, hope, and love in the hearts of the people, Paul says, your meetings do more harm than good. 
which suggests if we're not coming here with faith, hope, and love in our hearts, then this gathering does more harm than good. Chapter 12 starts with these words, verse 1. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Verse 4, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So Paul is teaching now to this community about the spiritual gifts that God has given to everyone in the community and how they are to work together for the common good. Then Paul goes on to list some of these gifts. And I'm going to go ahead and read this list because it's going to become relevant in a moment. Verse 8, To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He determines them, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines." Now, I read you this long list, and a couple of the things I read in this list maybe sound a little familiar to you because we read those things a little earlier because they're specifically mentioned again in 1 Corinthians 13 where they will play a representative role of that entire list. So understand, we're talking about all the spiritual gifts. And remember, we're looking for context. From what original things do faith, hope, and love remain? And we're almost there. We're going to push on. We're going to get this done. So, chapter 12. This chapter is wholly dedicated to talking about spiritual gifts, which are amazing and wonderful things that God pours out on everyone in the church so that we can all contribute to the building up of the kingdom. There's interconnectedness to them. And Paul ends his discussion in chapter 12 like this. Uh, Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And now I suppose if Paul had left the discussion here, we might be tempted to think that what remains in the Christian life, what is most important, is that we effectively use our spiritual gifts. And while Paul would definitely agree that it's important that all of us use the gifts God has given us effectively, which I believe chapter 12 and 14 make that point very well, these gifts, as great as they are, are not actually the most important part of the Christian life. They are a part for sure. But when everything gets boiled down to what remains, is it the gifts 
Paul isn't going to leave us unclear. He has a critical point he still needs to make, one that has the chance, if the people will understand it, to clear up all the troubles they're having in the church from chapters 1 to 11. If they will get back to what matters, every one of those problems will go away. But in order to truly understand chapter 13, there's one last little line at the end of chapter 12 we need. So let's read it now. The last part of verse 31, Paul says, after describing all these gifts, he says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So you see, it's not the speaking in tongues that's so critically important. It's love. And the next verse is going to tell us that it's not the knowledge and the miracles that are so important. It's love. And the next verse will say, no matter what you give, if you don't love, it doesn't build the kingdom of God. And after he says that comes the part that we spent a good part of the first part of this year on, beginning in verse 4. You remember this. You took time. You were reading this every day for a while. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Do you see how this list would solve all those problems at the first part that he talks about? It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So what Paul is saying here is that love is the real answer to everything he's addressing in the first part of this book. So here's what I'm suggesting to you today. When everything about being a Christian is boiled down to the essentials, when it all gets boiled down, it won't be a theological debate that sits at the core. And it won't be me making sure I get proper respect and all my rights protected that is at the core. And it won't be my radical practice of my freedom in Christ in your face, regardless of how it impacts you, that's left at the core. If that's the most important part about my Christianity, I'm missing the point. And it won't be my ability to be right and hang on to my anger because you're wrong that sits at the core. And it won't even be the remarkable way in which you or I use our spiritual gifts that remains at the core. The core of my faith better not be that I get up on Sabbath and talk. That's just me using spiritual gifts. There better be something else. When it all gets boiled down, what is it that remains? Well, why don't I let Paul tell us? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. 
Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. You're seeing this, right? That's a representative list of all the gifts. Paul is saying even the greatest of the gifts of the Spirit are not the things that remain, but they belong to the things that pass away. So it's not theology that remains, and it's not me protecting my rights that remains, and it's not even the spiritual gifts that remain. So when it's all boiled down, what remains of the Christian life? Verse 13 And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So let's go down this road. If faith, hope, and love are what remains, Shouldn't we spend the most of our time and energy focusing on and perfecting in our lives faith, hope, and love? Yet how often do we spend our energy in the church and in our private lives on anything but faith, hope, and love? And do we reward each other for these things? Or do we mostly reward each other for the, ec- for the excellent execution of spiritual gifts? Now, that's good. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I hope we all use our gifts, and I hope we use them effectively. But to praise each other for our gifts is to miss the core. Faith, hope, love. We tend to base our conclusions regarding who is a part of God's kingdom based on how effectively they use those gifts and how correctly they believe or behave. But what if instead we based our kingdom thinking on who among us has faith and who among us has hope and who among us has love? In that context, we might just start esteeming a completely different set of people within the community, wouldn't we? Now, it was about a year ago that we as a staff gave to certain leaders of this church, about 60 or 70 or so people, a survey, and we've talked about this before, called the Natural Church Development Survey. Now, this is a scientific research that was done that picked out eight factors in a church that contribute to the health and the effectiveness of that community. And it just so happens that one of the eight factors turned out to be gift-based ministry. So this is about the spiritual gifts that chapter 12 is talking about and how effectively we're using them in our lives. That's a very relevant factor within a church. But there was another factor showed up that was called loving relationships. So we surveyed the leaders in the church and we got the responses back. And it turns out that as a community, out of all eight of those factors, we ranked ourselves highest on gifts-based ministry. And we ranked ourselves lowest on loving relationships. And so this is the reason why this whole year, uh, this has been the theme this year, this heart-to-heart theme, that these are the people I love, that we would begin to open our eyes to each other and open our eyes to the relationships around us. Because when Christianity comes down to what remains, it's not the proper execution of spiritual gifts that remains. It's faith and hope, 
and love. So no more missing the point. I want to challenge you to commit with me today to put in the work we need to put in to move beyond the things that pass away and get focused on the things that remain. And part of that is a willingness to get together with other people and work through these studies together. It takes work to get to where we need to be on this. And if we really believe in this, we need to commit ourselves to be willing to put in that work, that time every day with the Lord, that time together in groups, that time here with the people we love to reflect on these words and to be built up. I believe this is where Jesus is calling us this fall. Are you ready to follow him? Faith? hope, and love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us if we have based our Christian life on anything but these things. And help us this fall to understand faith, to live faith, to understand hope, to live hope, and to understand love and live love. In Jesus' name, amen.